All right, well, good morning. Thank you guys for coming back. We're going to continue our study this morning on the book of Hosea. So I don't know if any of you got to read ahead, chapters 4 through 10, um, but when, when I've mentioned that this is what I'm teaching to a couple of people this week, their, their sort of response was, oh, you're in, you're in that part. Um, this is just a heavy part of Hosea. Unlike, unlike last week where we kind of got these cycles of um, God's accusation followed by his promises of reconciliation, 4 through 10 is all, it's all judgment. There's no, there's no bright spot in this section. Um, and, and I was thinking about kind of what it's like to read through and, and study this section. I was, I was thinking about what it's like when I uh, l- listen to too much news. <laughs> um, I've been trying to figure out exactly how much, how much news is helpful and wise for me to take in. And, and I'm careful about what I listen to. I try to listen to, to things on both sides of the aisle and the ones that are, that are more of a discussion and not just sort of a, a set of alarming talking pieces. Um, but I still find, even listening to, to some of the most thoughtful news I can find, that, that a certain volume of it just leaves me feeling just basically a sense of sort of existential dread. <laughs> right, right? Like if, if I listen to too many hours of news, no matter what kind it is in a week, I just, I just feel the weight of the number of problems in the world and just gloomy and just, just like I need to go do something and sort of restless and I think what I realized in that is that, is that I just, I'm just a small cup, basically. I, I, I can only hold so much inside myself. And if I fill that up with one kind of thing, if I fill that up with, with just news, I can only hold so much, and then I'm, that's all I'm full of. I, I've filled myself up just by the sheer volume of the same sort of thing. And I think reading Hosea 4 to 10 has a similar impact. Right, right. You, you read these, these accusations of God, the, the promise of judgment and punishment coming, and you read chapter after chapter after chapter of the same thing, and it just fills you up with that feeling, with that sense of the weightiness and the sobriety and, and the, the doom of what is coming on God's people. And, and I think it's meant to do that. Right? If you read all the prophets in the Old Testament, they all have these big sections of judgment, just solid blocks, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. They've all got these big sections of just chapter after chapter. You read them in your morning reading plan, day after day, or, or you go through the book, and it's just you know, long stretches of this, and you just feel it. And I don't think it's wise for us to, to spend all of our time just in the, the prophets and just reading about the judgment and the wrath of God. But, but when we come to these books and when we spend time in them, I do think that's actually the right feeling. I think if you walk away having read Hosea at the set time of the year or whenever you've read it and you feel just doom and heavy, that's right. You read that correctly. That's, that's what it's supposed to to do to us. And, and so as we look in that today, just keep that in mind. This, this is supposed to be a heavy section. More than half of the book of Hosea is just judgment and accusation. And that's on purpose. That's meant to fill us up in a certain way. So as we go through this, I said last week, this is an overview, so I'm not going to dig into every chapter. And, and this is a bigger section even than last week, so I'm not going to try to walk through every chapter in kind of an order and, and say, here's four, verses five, verses six. Well, what I want to do this morning is just kind of walk through and highlight some different things to notice or different themes in Hosea. As you're going through, here are some, some 
literary themes. Here's some emphases. Here's some things to pick out that, that when you go read Hosea again on your own, in your own reading plan or in a study, you'll feel a little more equipped to kind of notice these things and know what to do with each chapter as you're reading through it. Um, and as I said, just to sort of orient us in, in this section, um, Hosea is, I think, really kind of structured in three sort of arcs. Right, this, this, the book overall is probably a compilation of all of the things that Hosea would have said over a lifetime of being a prophet. Where he kind of he's given these different messages at different times, and then and then he or someone took them and worked them into this book, where the, the themes kind of flow and fit together. And 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 the structure is you've got last week we saw two short sort of mini arcs of God's judgment and then his reconciliation, uh, pictured through the. the family of Hosea himself, and then as an illustration of how God relates to his people um, as, as an unfaithful wife that is going into the wilderness, but God promises will also be reconciled. We saw that in chapter one. We saw it again in chapters two and three. And now we're entering this largest arc, which starts in chapter four and really goes all the way to chapter 14. And this morning, we're just going to look at the judgment part of that arc. Next week, we'll come and look at what the reconciliation is. And, and both of these are sort of zoomed in, um, more details, more description of, of what is God judging his people for, kind of looked at from a number of different angles. And next week, we'll look at what is that reconciliation going to be and, and the complication um, and yet the hope of it at the same time. So that's where we are. And as we dig in, I'm going I'm to generally follow that same structure. What's the sort of immediate context How does that fit into the larger Bible? And then at the end, what do we do with that? Just to kind of pull those pieces apart and think about them. Um, In this immediate context, just going to look at a few different things we notice in these chapters. Certainly not all of the things you could pick out, but these are just sort of, as I was studying through, things I thought would be worth highlighting this morning. So the first thing we look at, in the immediate context of Hosea, we notice um, what God is judging Israel for. And this is really kind of right up at the beginning, a reminder from last week. Uh, the God's people have abandoned him, and he's accusing them of unfaithfulness. And in chapter 4, you get a, re- a reiteration of that and a reminder of what does that unfaithfulness look like. On the one hand, you see that God's people have been unfaithful in their worship of God. I don't think I have all of these printed out in your notes, so if you want to follow along, I have a lot of references to read this morning. I'll try to go a little slowly to give you time to flip, flip back and forth to them, but um, I'm just going to be jumping through different things to read. So in Hosea 4, we see the picture of God's un, uh, Israel's unfaithfulness to God in worship. Starting in 12, he says, My people inquire of a piece of wood, and their walking staff give them oracles. For a spirit of whoredom has led them astray, and they have left their God to play the whore. They sacrifice on the tops of the mountains, and burnt offerings on the hills, under oak, poplar, and terebinth, because their shade is good. And this is a picture of God's people now sacrificing to, to the bales, and they have all of these altars spread throughout the land. Right? God's people were only supposed to sacrifice at one altar, at the tabernacle or at the temple. And so the accusation that there are altars under, on every hilltop, under every tree, is saying this is, this is an abandonment of the right worship of God. You have pursued idols all over. You've multiplied them in every place. And we saw last week that that, that picture is like a, a wife leaving her husband for these other men. That, that God's people have left God for these other gods. So we see God's 
people's unfaithfulness to him in worship, but we also see in chapter 4 their unfaithfulness to him in wickedness, specifically of their mistreatment of other people. Earlier in that same chapter, chapter 4, verses 1 and 2 says, There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. They've abandoned God, and it looks like this. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. They've abandoned God by their worship, but they've also abandoned God by their lifestyle, by the way they are living, by pursuing wickedness and mistreatment of other people. And this is a common thing in all of the prophets, that, that they don't make really a distinction between unfaithfulness to God in worship and unfaithfulness to God in the way they live in the world. They see those as just two sides of the same coin. Right? And that makes sense if you think about it. Right, You've, False worship is going to result in unfaithful living. And, and if you are worshiping God rightly, if you've understood his truth and his goodness and his instruction, it's going to result in a righteous life that is full of kindness and love and peace. Those two things go together. And, and we need to make sure that we see this is what the prophets understand, that they're holding those two together, and so we also hold them together. This is the heart of God. I hear sometimes today that, that, that people within the church will sort of accuse each other or, or emphasize one of these over the other. Right? You hear some people, and, we, and we've talked about this before, but we have some people uh, will emphasize the need to worship God rightly and the need to know his truth and to read his word and to have the right theology and belief system. And then some people will emphasize the needs that, that we need to live rightly, that we need to love our neighbors and we need to walk a certain way in the world and present a certain witness and, and be compassionate and caring people. And the prophets would just say yes to both. Yes, both of those. And if we hear in the world today, some people, or, or in the church today, some people saying, you have wrongly emphasized this. You, you're talking about the way we need to live, but you don't talk about theology. Or, or you're talking about um, theology, but it doesn't seem to translate to the way that you live. We need to hold those together. We don't need to divide over those things or say, no, you're emphasizing one side too much. We, we need both. We need people who are bent towards theology. We need people who are bent towards lifestyle to help us figure out how these go together. But we can't separate them. If you abandon God's worship, you will live wrongly. And if you're living wrongly, it shows you have abandoned the right worship of God. The prophets accuse those of God's people of those two things as if they're the same because they are. Going on. What else do we see in Hosea chapter 4 through 10? Well, a, a few features to notice. You see a lot of sense of poetic justice. Right? And poetic, we, we mentioned this a little bit last week. Um, and, and, and I think it fits the way that we want justice to come. Right? When, when we want people, when we see the bad guy in, in a movie or a story and, and the way that they get defeated or overthrown at the end, the Sheriff of Nottingham, right? In the, in the story of Robin Hood. It would have been really unsatisfying if he had just died in his sleep in the middle of that story. Right? I mean, maybe that would have been a good ending, but it would have, it would have been missing something, right? You want the ending of that story it's where to be he fights Robin and loses, and then the king comes back and says, you've been terrible and wrong all the time, right? You want the, 
the wrongness to be seen and defeated in, in a way that's just fitting. A sort of sense of poetic justice. And, and we saw that a little bit last week, that in chapter 2, God says, you've abandoned me for these fertility gods, for Baal, the ones you think brings the produce in your crop and the fertility in your family. And so what am I going to curse? I'm going to curse your crops. I'm going to destroy all the things you thought those gods were bringing you. And there's poetic justice in the way God brings his judgment. You see this a few more times in, in chapter 4, verse 10. He says, they shall eat, but not be satisfied. They shall play the whore, but not multiply, because they have forsaken the Lord. Again, picking up on what their abandonment has been. Right? You've pursued the Baals. You've pursued the ones who you thought were going to bring you crops and children. So what are you not going to have? You're not going to have food, and you're not going to have children. Again, another version of this is in chapter 10, verses 13 and 14. Says, but you have trusted in your own way and in the multitude of your warriors. So you've abandoned me not only in worship, but in pursuit of these other nations and your own strength that you think is going to protect you. And so, what's the judgment? Therefore, in the tumult of war shall arise among your people, and all your fortresses shall be destroyed. You've trusted in the strength of military to protect you, you've forgotten that I'm your protector. And so, what will happen? You will be destroyed in the place you thought you were strong. It's helpful for us to see that this is what the judgment of the Lord looks like because we will recognize as well at the end when all judgment, when all is revealed, no one is going to look at the judgment of God, at the, what he is accused and what he has done and say, I'm not sure that was right. Not only is his judgment on sin that you've abandoned me and you're destroyed, but it's going to be fitting. It's going to match the punishment. It's going to match the crime. The punishment is going to match the crime for what everyone has done, and no one will be able to say that was unfair. What else do we see in Hosea? There's, there's, one of the things I enjoy in this, this heavy passage is, is something I, I just think of as sort of quippy language. Right? You, you read this, and, and if, you, if you catch what they're doing, you, you might actually just stop and laugh for a second. It's kind of helpful to get through <laughs> the heaviness of these chapters. I just read one. Hosea 4.12 says this. My people inquire of a piece of wood, and their walking staff gives them oracles. Right? That's, I mean, that's funny. Right? It's supposed to be, you're supposed to read that and think, yeah, that is what they're doing. Right? The prophets make fun, commonly make fun of the practice of idol worship because you're, you, know, you just carved this, you just carved this thing out of a piece of wood, and now you're worshiping it? Just, I mean, think about that for a second. Right? The next time you're walking up to the top of the mountain to go sacrifice to this God you've made up there, look at your walking stick and say, like, what, what really is the difference here? Right? <laughs> Another example of this, um, this is probably one of the more famous passages in Hosea. Hosea 8, 7 says, For they sow the wind and they shall reap the whirlwind. Right, there's probably a couple things going on in this passage. Well, one... There was a farming practice at the time where you would actually, on a sort of a lightly breezy day, you'd, you'd just throw the seed in the air and it would help you spread it out over the field. And then you don't have to go, you know, put it in all the little different spots. So there's this vivid, they would have understood, okay, you're sowing in the wind and, and what's going to come? A whirlwind is going to come. Right? You're, again, kind of picking up on the theme of trusting in the bales to bring your crops. But what are you going to get? You're going to get a storm. It's going to destroy all of the crops that you have in this field. 
that's probably one level of the, that this is working. But, but another level it probably is working is, is that wind could also be a, a use for sort of futility, right? Sort of here today, gone tomorrow, just things blowing through. You've, you've sown to all of these futile, useless things. And because of your foolishness, you're going to get destruction. Because of the wind and the lightness and the silliness of the way that you're living right now, I am coming in a whirlwind to destroy you. Another one you get is Hosea 8, 11. Um, it says this, and it, I'm not sure how your Bible will translate this, but it says, because Ephraim has multiplied altars for sinning, they have become to him altars for sinning. I think what it meant here is, is right, altars were sort of sin offering places, right? You would come and offer your sin offering on this altar. But what he's saying is now you've gotten so many altars, you've abandoned the right worship of God's. Now your offering is in fact sin. This place to offer your sin offering is now an offering for you to be sinning. It's kind of a play on words here. And you, you think, it just, these, are, these are helpful phrases, I think, because they stick with you. Right? They're not just, uh, it, he's described the judgment, he's described the unfaithfulness, but now he's describing it in language that is quippy, that's sticky. That, that's gonna, it's going to remind the people as they go on, look at their walking stick, look at just the number of altars that you have and say like, yeah, maybe, I see what you're saying. <laughs> um, you know, we use phrases like this too, right? Like we say, don't judge a book by its cover. Right? And it doesn't add a whole lot of thoughts to don't trust your first impressions on someone, but make sure you really get to know what's on the inside. But that, you're not going to remember that. right? Don't judge a book by its cover. That sticks with you. Your altars for sinning have become altars for sinning. That's going to stick with you. You're going to remember these things. You can just sort of imagine the prophet Hosea getting up and saying these phrases, these sort of zingers, in the hope that people are going to remember it as they go on. That they're going to hear what he's saying. And that's an important piece, I think, of this judgment is to recognize it, it is sort of fatal, is fatalistic sometimes. You know what happens, so you know this is going to happen. But it's also offered in a way that people can receive, that people will be able to hear it. And then if they don't, it's not because it was communicated in this cryptic, difficult language that they couldn't understand quite what was being said. They heard it. They got it. They will be without excuse if they don't follow it. God has gone above and beyond to make sure that they understand. Another way he does this is by the imagery that he uses. Right? I, I love this sort of thing. Hosea 5.12 um, describes God as moth and as rot. It says, But I am like a moth to Ephraim, and like dry rot to the house of Judah. Right? A lot of the curses in Hosea and, and what was promised in the Old Testament, the, the Deuteronomy we saw last week and Leviticus we're going to look at later today are, are sort of wasting curses, right? You're going to go after all of these bales. You're going to try to grow all these crops, and it's just not going to work out. Storms are going to kill them. People are going to come take them. Wild beasts are going to take them. And so God is saying, I'm going to be to you like a moth that eats up all of the crops that you have stored. I'm going to be like rot that, that kills and destroys all of the things that you've put aside in your closet, you, you see this picture of what's coming. Another picture, Hosea 5, 14. says, For I will be like a lion to Ephraim, and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. 
I will carry off and no one shall rescue. Again, this imagery is very clear, right? And, and, and don't overthink it. I don't, I don't think there's much to the, the lion and Judah combination here other than just the picture of the God is going to be to them like a lion that comes and destroys. It's just a scary picture, right? This could be a real thing back uh, before you could call animal control. If there's a wild lion coming around your village carrying people off in the night, like that's a pro- I mean, that's not good. What are you going to do about that? That's what God is saying. I'm going to be like this to you. Another picture he gives of Israel itself is in Hosea 10, verse 1. You have to dig into the language of this a little bit here. He says, Isaiah, Israel is like a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. That word luxuriant doesn't get translated very well in English because it, it's got a double meaning in Hebrew. Right? It, it means sort of a spreading vine, right? one that's sort of grown and covered everything. And it's also the same word for a barren vine, one that's not producing any fruit. So it, and they would have understood that. And the picture works really well here. It's, it's like a vine that's grown and, and you, you planted it and it's covering everything and it's just got no fruit. I've got this orange tree in my backyard. It's about nine feet tall at this point. I've had it about five years and this year it put out one orange. So it's got one more year or I'm cutting that thing down. And that's the picture here, right? There's this big vine that's grown everywhere. I've got this big tree and it's spreading and it's got all this promise and I'm looking for the fruit from it and there's nothing. There's nothing on it. That's what he's looking at, Israel. I've established you. I've planted you. You've been through this time of expansion and grown and what am I getting from you? Nothing. What am I going to do with you? I'm going to cut you down. There's nothing. These, these images, these, they stick with you, just like the quippy language. I think that's the point. God has made us to receive, not just in logical explanations, but, but he's made us to receive his word in, in all sorts of forms, in language that works in beautiful and, and sticky ways, in images that stick with us, that, that create a picture in our mind, that help us understand what God is talking about. And in this kind of language, it's all throughout the Bible. In fact, this, this is one of the reasons I try to, to teach the way that I teach. I try to use illustrations and, and words that stick, and um, even the, the mnemonic rhyme, you know, everything starts with the same letter, as much as I, I don't like doing that all the time. But, but it's helpful. Our minds work that way. They stick with us, and God communicates to us this way. These aren't just clever human devices I learned from a, a book on speaking. These are, these are examples I found in God's Word. He speaks to us through images and through poetry in ways that are meant to stick with us and affect us. He's, he created us to receive, and he speaks to us in a way that we can understand. What else we see here is, is that Israel's corruption is total. This is probably one of the most clarifying things I took as I read through this section of the passage, is why God's judgment is coming is because these people just seem hopeless in this moment, in this context. I'm going to read through sort of more of this passage here, starting in Hosea 6 and going all the way through 7, 3. I'm going to skip a section in the middle just for time. But I think this is really helpful to understand the full dynamic of sort of what's going on, the full exposition of why God's judgment is coming. He starts off here speaking in the voice of Israel as if they were coming to repent, and then his response to to what they would be saying. 
starting in 6.1. It says, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up, that we may live before him. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. And then God responds, What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Skip to 7, verse 1. God continues, When I would heal Israel, the iniquity of Ephraim is revealed. And the evil deeds of Samaria, for they deal falsely. The thief breaks in, and the bandits raid outside, and they do not consider that I remember all their evil. Now their deeds surround them. They are before my face. So what's going on here? Israel starts off saying all the things that you'd want them to say. It sounds like they're repenting. It sounds like they'd be coming back. Like if they said these words, wouldn't God turn and heal them? And what God says is, Your repentance is shallow and light. We've done this before. You've said these words before. And what happens when I turn and when I heal you, then your corruption is revealed. Why? Because you go right back to what you were doing before. If you read Kings, if you go all the way back to the establishment of Israel, God's people have fallen again and again, and never does it result in steadfast love. They might turn for a moment and offer sacrifices. They might turn and repent. But what what do they say? Oh, it will be quick. God will heal us in two days, just three days. God wants to heal us. He wants to bring us back. This will be quick. And God says that this never works. You never stay. Right? We know people like this, right? The people in your life that, that kind of just keep living in a pattern that, that's just inconsiderate in some way. Just doesn't, just doesn't, maybe, maybe this can be serious categories. These can be silly categories. You know, someone always borrowing your stuff and saying, oh, I'm going to bring it back. And you're like, I'll never see that again. More serious categories of, of people who just sort of seem to assume on your continued kindness and grace. And, and maybe you say something about it and, and, and you, you talk about like, hey, we really can't, I really need you to start doing this. And, and when you do that, they respond, right? They're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I know. I'm sorry. So really, I hate that I do that. I'm so sorry. I'm going to work on it. And even as they're saying it, you know, no, you're not. We've done this before. It never gets better. What's going to make this get better? That's what God's saying here. What's going to make this get better, Israel? We've done this time and time again, and you never stay. 7 verse 14, this is his accusation. He says, They do not cry to me from their heart, but they wail upon their beds for grain and wine they gash themselves. They rebel against me. They don't want God. They don't want righteousness. They just want this moment of suffering to end. How is that going to change? And because it's not changing, God's judgment is coming finally. And when it comes, a thing you can't get away from in this passage is that God's judgment on his people is brutal. I don't have a lot of commentary on this. I'm just going to read some of the sections that are probably the hardest for me to read. And I'm going to skip ahead a little bit to chapter 13 just because I think those are the hardest. 
there's a lot of hard things said in 4 through 10, but 13 is probably the darkest moments, at least as far as, as my heart when I read this. We've already seen the picture of God as a lion towards his people, and he expands that in 13.8. He says, I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. I will tear open their breasts, and there I will devour them like a lion, as a wild beast would rip them open. There's some passages that are less poetic, but, but maybe even worse, because they just seem to be describing real circumstances. Hosea 9.16 and 17 says it like this, Ephraim is stricken, their root is dried up, they shall bear no fruit. Even though they give birth, I will put their beloved children to death. My God will reject them. Because they have not listened to him, they shall be wanderers among the nations. And again, back to thirteen sixteen it says, Samaria shall bear her guilt because she has rebelled against her God. They shall fall by the sword. Their little ones shall be dashed in pieces, and their pregnant women ripped open. We know from history that an Assyrian invasion, which would be the final end of Israel, had all of these features. They were known for their brutality. In fact, it was a strategy, I think, that, that they would be so brutal that other nations would just give in, not wanting that to happen to them. And this happens to Israel. And if you read these passages and, and it doesn't unsettle you, I think you probably read it wrong. These are unsettling. These are harsh. These are hard things to read. They're meant to be sobering. They're meant to be difficult. And honestly, personally, I think I'm going to have questions about a God who creates all things and has this part of the story until I see him's face. I don't think we're meant to move by these easily and have quick answers to how this is what God is deciding to do. But what I think is helpful is not to read these alone, but to figure out where does this judgment, where do these passages sit in the overall storyline that God is unveiling with his people? So one thing that's helpful is to look back and see that we're, we're entering this story kind of at a particular moment, really towards the end of this back and forth. And that God has promised and been drawing his people for generations. We can see, actually, go all the way back to Leviticus. We did this last week with Deuteronomy. Um, and Deuteronomy is probably recounting this, this, this uh, series of blessings and curses from Leviticus. It's before they go into the land, reminding them, this is the basis of my covenant. And we get this here in Leviticus 26. I'm going to kind of skip through um, pieces, but read, read. I think you have it printed in your notes. God says, if you walk in my statutes and observe my commands and do them, then I will give you your rains in their season and the land shall yield its increase and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. But, verse 14, if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all my commandments but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease and fever that consume the eyes and make the heart ache. And you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. Already we're hearing echoes of what God does in Hosea. But continue on in 21. 
Then, if you walk contrary to me and will not listen, I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins. And I will let loose the wild beasts against you, which shall bereave you of your children and destroy your livestock and make you few in number, so that your road shall be deserted. And if by this discipline you are not turned to me, but walk contrary to me, then I also will walk contrary to you, and I myself will strike you sevenfold for your sins. And I will bring a sword upon you that shall execute vengeance for the covenant. And if you gather within your cities, I will send pestilence among you, and you shall be delivered into the hand of the enemy. When I break your supply of bread, ten women shall break your bread and break bread in a single oven and shall dole out your bread again by weight, and you shall eat and not be satisfied. But if in spite of this you will not listen to me, but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury, and I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. You shall eat the flesh of your sons, and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters. And I will destroy your high places, and cut down your incense altars, and cast your dead bodies upon the dead bodies of your idols. And my soul will abhor you. That's not a much easier passage to read. But it is helpful, I think, to realize that when we read Hosea, we're coming in here at the end of this cycle of God's discipline. And then it's designed to bring his people back. And if you read the story of God walking with his people for generation after generation, starting before they even get into the land with their unfaithfulness, and Moses intercedes and they come back. And then they get in and we get the story of the judges where God um, sends different raiding parties in and the people repent and he sends a judge to save them. And then just a generation later, we're back. We do that over and over and over again. And then we get to the kings, and the same thing happens. There's a be- good beginnings. Right? David the king comes and, and establishes right worship, and Solomon builds a temple, and then everything from that moment is downhill. And we get these cycles where the prophets wait for generations, speaking to God's people, come back, and they do for a moment, and then they go again. And they come back, and they do for a moment, and then again. God has been working with his people, drawing them back to himself, showing that even all of these curses are not enough to overcome the wickedness in their hearts. That this is the depth of the sin in not only God's people, but all of humanity. That doesn't answer all my questions. That doesn't make me feel great about it, but it does help me begin to see what God is trying to show me about how he relates to his people. The thing that I think is even more helpful is to recognize that God does not stay distant in this moment, that this isn't the end of the story, but that all of this wrath, all of this judgment that he pours on his people, he ends up stepping into the way of it himself. Isaiah, speaking at the same time as Hosea, says this, looking forward to what God is going to do in Christ says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
right? I, I think I'm always going to have questions about, did it have to be this hard? And I don't know the answer to that question. I can't. I'm, I'm not given to see all that could be or might, might have been alternately. But I do see this, that God meets this out upon himself. He does not stay separate from the judgment and the wrath that he pours on our sin. But for those who are in Christ, he steps in the way. The judgment that was ultimately poured out on Israel will not ultimately be poured out on us because Christ took it. And the description of what it's like and the reality we see of Christ on the cross is no less brutal than the judgment we see promised in Hosea. So what do we do when we read this passage and and feel the weight? We're filled up with the weight of sin, the sobriety around judgment. What what should that do to us? A few thoughts. I I think one thing is, is just to help us to contemplate the seriousness of sin. I think it's easy for those of us who, who are, I don't know, particularly evangelical or Protestant or, or whatever the, the denomination is. We do tend to focus on the victory that we have in Christ and the hope we have in his returning. And we put the accent on that. And I think that is right. I don't think we need to read Hosea every day. I don't think we need to sit in this all the time and be constantly mourning our sin. But we do need to understand what this feels like. We do need this as a backdrop to fully appreciate what Christ has done for us. This is another reason I like Lord of the Rings, which is just my favorite go-to reference. Because one of the things I appreciate most about Lord of the Rings is it's pervasively sad. There is no victory in Lord of the Rings without serious cost. Even at the end of the story, many of the things that you enjoyed along the way are lost forever and don't come back. They can't. That's the weight of the difficulty, the weight of the struggle. And I think J.R. Tolkien understood something about the seriousness of sin and the cost of dealing with it. And seeing it as a backdrop, everything in the world is potentially very sad. And that makes the moments of life and victory shine out the greater because you feel what could have been. I think passages like Hosea are meant to help us understand what could have been. I think another thing we notice in Hosea is is where the problems come from. Right? If you're living in the land of Israel at the time, you'd probably be worried about foreign affairs and politics and things going on and what the king's doing and and, and all of these threats, you know, how is the crop gonna do, all these sort of external things. But what's the problem in Hosea? All of those external things are there and are problems only because what's inside God's people is corrupt. This is always the problem for God's people. We don't need to worry about what's happening out there. God can take care of that. We see it again and again in his word and his stories. He is victorious in ways that are last moment and unexpected and can be totally trusted in. The reason that that doesn't happen for God's people is because of them. The problem is inside. This is what we need to realize. The story of the Old Testament, when we understand the root of the problem in the world, when we understand where we need to focus our concern, it's not out there. 
It's in us. This is the picture of sin. This is the concern we have in our lives. God can take care of all of the other things. And, and I think contemplating the seriousness of sin, understanding the problem in ourselves, helps us walk through the world in a way that, that we are adjusted. We are adjusted to see the soberness of sin. We're to take it seriously in our own hearts. Right? It's easy for me to say, yeah, yeah, I know I need to deal with this problem. I know I'm, I'm, I kind of lose my temper sometimes or I'm a little bit upset or a little angry. But, you know, God loves me and, and, and I'm going to be okay and all these other things are doing okay. But, but you read Hosea and you see, no, the problem in me is a problem. And yes, there's hope and yes, there's redemption. And yes, I'm being conformed to the image of God and my ultimate victory is secure. But the seriousness of sin in my own life is serious. If I've understood how God feels about sin and the wrath he pours on it and the lengths he goes to eradicate it, I can never take that lightly in my own heart. And I should have compassion on those other people who are dealing with it as well. They will not escape. God will not let any sin go unpunished. And I am no better than anyone else. And when I see the darkness and the risk that I have been rescued from, not as a conquering soldier, but as a prisoner just set free from my chains, I should not look at anyone else and say, how could you? But there but the grace of God, there but for the grace of God go I. This adjusts us to walk soberly in the world. Not to be surprised by its darkness, but to be surprised by the joy and the victory that God inserts into it and rejoice with it. Not because it's our due, but because it's not. And then we should go on and read the rest of the book, which we will do next week. So I hope you'll come back to see the final, not simple, but hopeful resolution of Hosea.